Customs and Tribal Lifestyle Among the foul habits of the Arabs, three were particularly distinct. Drinking, gambling, and fornication were so abundantly rampant that may God be a refuge. To one's amazement, these habits were considered a means of pride. Therefore, poets of the Jahaliyyah measurably make mention of such lewdness in a description of their explicit experiences. Moreover, without such explicitly lewd mention, poetry was considered meaningless to the Arabs. Therefore, it is considered incumbent that in the prelude to a qasida, regardless of its actual topic, the poet would make explicit mention of his actual or longed-for lover, and would describe a few of his intimate encounters with her. Qab bin Zuhair was a renowned poet who came before the Holy Prophet and presented a qasida in praise of the Holy Prophet which is known today as the Banat Suad. In the prelude to this poem as well, the poet relayed stories of his suffering with relevance to this parted lover. The level of shamelessness was such that on various instances, masters would subject their female slaves to prostitution and would require its generated revenue. This was also a means of revenue generation. However, the nobility was free of such utter disgrace. Due to ignorance and the unnecessary fury of the Arabs, fighting would erupt upon the pettiest of matters. It is apparent through history that upon certain instances, two tribes would fall into a vehement war over a small incident, and then gradually various other tribes would also become involved, due to which murder and bloodshed would continue for years and years. The instance mentioned below is a minor page in the history of Arabia. To the end of the 5th century AD, Khuleh bin Rabia was a very powerful and influential ruler who was a chieftain of the Banu Taghlib, which inhabited the northeast of Arabia. Halila bint Murrah, the wife of Kolab, belonged to the Banu Bakr bin Wail. Halila had a brother named Jasas, who lived with his maternal aunt named Basus. It so happened that a person named Saad visited Basus and stayed with her as a guest. He owned a camel named Sareb, which on account of Saad and Kholab's relationship would graze in the grazing ground of Kholab along with Jasas's camels. One day, coincidentally, Kholab passed under a tree and heard the sound of a bird. He noticed that a bird had built a nest in the tree and laid some eggs. Kholab looked towards the bird in his supremely Bedouin manner and said, Fear not, I shall protect you. The next day, when Khuleb passed by the same place, he noticed that the eggs had fallen down from the tree and had been trampled on by the feet of some animal, and the bird was making a sound full of extreme grief. Khuleb recalled his statement from the previous day, and it was as if his eyes gorged of blood in extreme rage. When he glanced here and there, he noticed that Saad's camel was grazing nearby. Kholeb thought to himself that most definitely it is this camel that has destroyed these eggs. And overtaken by anger, he came to his brother-in-law, Jasas, and said, Look here, Jasas, at this time my mind entertains a particular thought. If I am assured of this thought, I shall do something. Anyhow, the camel of Saad had better not pasture in this area again with this herd. Upon hearing this, Jasas, whose veins also flowed of Arab Bedouin blood, responded, This camel belongs to our guest, where my camels graze, and his shall also graze. Fine, answered Kuleb. 
If I see this camel grazing here again, I shall strike its breast with an arrow and kill it. If you do such a thing, retorted Jezus, I will also swear by the idols of Wa'il that I shall myself penetrate thy breast with a spear. Upon this, Jesus departed, and Kolab returned home in a state of immense fury and began to say to his wife, Halila, are you aware of any man who dared defend his neighbor against me? She responded, There are none who dare it, except my brother Jesus. If he says something, he shall most definitely fulfill it. After this, Halila fervently attempted to settle this dispute, but was unsuccessful in doing so. Hence, one day Kolab's camels were drinking water, and coincidentally, Jassas brought his camels as well, and even more so, Saad's camel was separated from its herd and began to drink water with Kolab's herd. Kolab laid eyes on this camel and thought that Jassas had intentionally released his camel. He took hold of his bow and drove an arrow into its breast, which hit his target perfectly. Saad's camel fled tossing and turning in agony, lamenting in pain. It reached the doorstep of Jezas' maternal aunt, Basus, and fell to the ground. When Basus witnessed the sight, she began to beat her head and shrieked, Shame! Shame! We have been disgraced, and our guest's camel has been killed. When Jezas heard these words, his jealousy and honor pierced, and he murdered Ghaleb in his rage. The murder of Ghaleb instigated a wildfire amongst the Banu Taghlib. And in the retribution of their chieftain, they stood up unanimously. Due to this, the tribes of Taghlib and Banu Bakr were engaged in such intense violence and bloodshed that I seek the refuge of God. At last, after 40 years of fighting, when both tribes were gradually weakened, the king of the state of Hira, named Mundir Thalith, reconciled these two tribes. Historically, this war is known as the Battle of Basus. In the wars of Arabia, the concept of Thar, or retribution, played a crucial role. It was as if the doctrine of Thar was the greatest part of their religion and creed. Their belief was that until vengeance had been acquired, the soul of the murderer takes on the form of an animal and mourns and laments moving here and there in the sky. The Arabs referred to this animal as Suda. When a man was murdered, it was the obligation of his relatives and fellow tribesmen to kill the murderer, or one of his relatives or a man of his tribe. In retribution of the deceased, the custom of paying blood money was also in place. However, in this case, the aspect of financial gain was not as important as was the fact that the tribe of the murderer be disgraced and shamed whilst paying the blood money. However, generally, until the victim's revenge was sought, the hearts of his relatives were home to a relentlessly burning fire of revenge, which could only be extinguished by the blood of the murderer. Conversely, where one fire was extinguished, the same fire would begin to blaze on the opposing end. In this manner, this constant chain would incessantly increase, and in various instances, tribes upon tribes would burn to ashes in this raging fire of violence. However, retribution did not end at the murderer's death. Rather, the hands, feet, ears, and nose, etc. of the dead 
would also be severed as a consolation of heart. This custom was known as mutla and was common in Arab warfare. Hence, it shall be seen later that on the battle of Uhud, Hind, the wife of Abu Sufyan, dealt in the same manner with Hamza, the paternal uncle of the Holy Prophet, who killed Utbah, the father of Hind, in the battle of Badr. She mercilessly extracted the liver of Hamza and chewed in it in rage. The Arabs felt no repugnance in killing women and children who would come as captives of war. To fully acquire revenge, they would drink liquor in the skulls of the dead, would spear pregnant women and thus cause miscarriages, and would attack men in a state of sleep whilst they were negligent of their surroundings and much more. These were things which generally the Arab society did not consider unlawful. It was in the general custom of the Arabs to light a fire at an elevated location during wars. This fire would would be kept alit during combat. If the fire was extinguished, it was considered an abysmal omen. Hence, we shall come to see ahead that during the Battle of the Confederates, for some reason, when the fire of one commander was lit out, he became frightened and retreated from the battlegrounds all alone that same night. As a result of this, a state of chaos erupted within the rest of the army. Generally, women also participated in wars, and their prime responsibility was to incite a sense of honor and passion by reciting poetic couplets in order to kindle the fire of war. It was also women who would tend to the wounds of warriors, a practice which to some extent also carried forth in Islam as well. In battle, it was customary that first there would be one-to-one combat followed by a general assault. The Arabs utilized three primary pieces of equipment in warfare, which were the bow and arrow, spear and, and sword. For defensive purposes, they would use chain armor composed of rings and a helmet. The Arabs fought in combat on horses as well as on foot. However, it was considered a symbol of courage between two warriors to step down from one's horse during combat and cut the legs of one's dear horse so as to prove that no room for retreat had been left. In wars, camels were used as a means of conveyance. Among the Arabs, courage and bravery were considered exceptionally salient qualities. Arab poets would present stories and tales of their own bravery as well as that of their tribe, with heartfelt passion and fervor. It was as if bravery was the most prominent of all their national traits. The fear of death was considered very shameful, and one who feared death was taunted and reproached by all. In actuality, courage was inseparably correlative to the Arab way of life. Tales of Arabian honor and arrogance also were quite removed. The famous Mu'alaka, of Umar bin Khultum addressed to Umar bin Hind in a particularly Arab manner is a common example of the Arab sense of honor. Generally, when it came to personal gain, the Arabs were not ones to endow much consideration to their oaths and agreements. Hence, where examples of loyalty are found among the Arabs, they are astounding. Samu'il bin Adiyah, in protection of a trust of Amrul Qais, did not even care for the murder of his young son. Among Arabs, generosity was considered a sublime quality. The protection of neighbors and guests was part of their religion and creed. 
Hospitality was second nature to the Arabs. At night, they would light a fire upon an elevated location so that travelers struck by misfortune could see this light and find their way home. They would feel no hesitation in selling all of their household assets for the sake of their guests. In this regard, tales of generosity and hospitality of a famous Arab hero named of Hatham Tai are among the tongues of all and sundry. Loyalty and allegiance to one's tribe was considered an essential obligation among the Arabs. A poet says in pride and self-honor, I am from the tribe of Gaziah. If they commit a mistake, I shall do the same. And if Gaziah treads the right path, I shall also walk the same path. Among the Arabs, it was a common practice to flaunt one's genealogy and to arrogantly make mention of the achievements of ancestors was as if their specialty. It was due to this very arrogance that the Arabs looked down upon their slaves and attendants with great scorn and disdain. In dealing with their enemies, the Arabs were ruthless and cruel. The bloody practice of Thar had already been mentioned above, and it was as if this custom played a central role in their religion and belief. Before Thar, the Arabs did not even fear their fate and destiny at the hands of God. A poet says, Verily, I shall cleanse myself of humiliation and dishonor by my sword. The decree of Allah can bring upon me what it wills, I care not. The Arabs were extremely intelligent, and their memory was exceptionally remarkable. Hence, since ancient times, it had been their custom to memorize all their national and family narration, and would relate them upon various occasions. During war, when two daring warriors moved forward for one-to-one -one combat, one would always inquire as to the genealogical background of his opponent. If someone was of a lower caste, the other would refuse to fight him. Among the Arabs, years and months were calculated according to the movement of the moon. Of twelve months, the first, seventh, and last two months were considered months of reverence, in which all types of violence were strictly prohibited. For their own expediences, the Arabs would move the order of these months forward or backward in certain instances. This way, if need be, they could continue fighting without the fear of sin. The ritual was known as Nasi. Status of Women In Arabia, the state of women, on the whole, was not respectable. Without a doubt, although women possessed the right to choose their own husband, after the utilization of this right, they were practically left with no rights at all. Wise women possessed a firm influence over their husbands. The participation of women in war had already been mentioned. Their task was to incite a sense of jealousy among the men in combat and to tend to the injured. Women were also involved in poetry. Khansa is a famous poetess of the Jahaliya who later became Muslim. The custom of Barda was not found among Arab women, rather they moved about openly. There was no limit to the number of wives, and one could keep as many as he so wished. In some instances, a son would take hold of his father's wife in inheritance, and two biological sisters would also be taken in marriage simultaneously. 
However, the nobles of Arabia looked upon this conduct with displeasure. Divorce was a common practice in Arabia, and a husband could separate his wife from himself whenever he so pleased. The ritual of burying live baby girls was also customary among the Arabs. However, this particular ritual was found in specific tribes only and was not common. Daughters were not entitled to inheritance, nor were wives. If someone had no male child, the entirety of his inheritance would be usurped by his brother, and the wife and daughter of the deceased would be left empty-handed. Rituals and their veneration It shall now be mentioned that upon the advent of Islam, Arabia was composed of many religions which adhered to diverse doctrines and different ideologies. However, with respect to lifestyle and national character, all of Arabia was under the same precept. Moreover, the habits and characteristics mentioned above were common to all. In the time of the Jahaliyyah, there was a Jewish chieftain in Yathrib named Fityun. This wretched man's general order throughout the city was that any girl who was to be married was first required to come to his home first. Hence, at the time of marriage, a majority of the Jews in Yathrib would send their unmarried girls to his home before they were lawful to anyone else. Eventually, a man in his indignation killed Fityun. Similarly, in this era, the Christians were also in an awful state as acknowledged by Muir himself in his book. Therefore, in Arabia, with regards to lifestyle, characteristics, and national customs, whether idolaters, Jewish, or Christian, all were similar in hue. The blazing arena of bloodshed, devastation, gambling, fornication, and drinking burnt in every corner. Similarly, it was common among all to conform to rituals to such extent as religion became inconsequential before them. Strange rituals disseminated throughout the country. For example, one ritual was to seek Lot by divining arrows. In other words, ten people would include their share in a sacrifice, after which its division would not be through proportionally equal shares. Rather, lots were drawn by divining arrows. In this manner, People would acquire their share by the lots which were drawn to them, while others would remain without any share at all. Every arrow was assigned a name to which differentially separate proportions were assigned. The seeking of omens by divining arrows was also a commonly practiced ritual. Prior to the commencement of any task, omens would be taken by divining arrows. Divining arrows were also placed in the Kaaba as well, and people would go there to seek omens. It was also common to take omens by the flight of birds. Among various Arabian tribes, another eccentric custom was after departing for travel, if for some reason a return was necessary during the course of travel, they would not enter through their front door. Rather, they would enter their homes through the rear. The Holy Quran makes mention of this as well. Among various tribes, it was a custom that if an individual died, his camel would be tied in the proximity of his grave until it too would die of hunger and thirst. The practice of lamentation and mourning over the dead was excessively rampant among the women. Mourning over the dead would continue year upon year. In Arabia, generally women did not milk animals and it was considered disgraceful for women to do so. If in any family a woman was seen performing this task, that household would fall in the eyes of others. It was also a ritual 
to release animals to wander freely as an offering in the names of idols and as an oblation. In this respect, four types of animals were recognized. Firstly, a saiba, which referred to a she-camel, which gave birth to ten female camels consecutive. Conveyance on she-camels of this kind would be completely relinquished. Moreover, save guests, the use of its milk was not considered lawful, nor was it stripped of its wool. Secondly, a bahira, which referred to the eleventh female child of a saiba. The ears of a bahira were cut down the middle and released to roam free with her mother. Thirdly, a ham, which was the name given to a camel that was the father of ten female children, would also be left to roam independently. Fourthly, a wasila, which referred to a she-goat that gave birth to ten female children consecutively. The meat of the offspring of such a she-goat was consumed only by men and considered unlawful for women. Albeit, if any of its children died, women were also permitted to consume its meat. The Holy Quran has also mentioned these animals. Many outlandish nuptial rituals were also practiced. Generally, there were four types of matrimony. The most deviant and filthiest type was that a few men would come to a single woman and one after another they would incur dishonor upon themselves by illicit intercourse. At the birth of her child, these men would gather around her once again and the child would be attributed to whoever the woman held responsible. However, the nobles were free of such shamelessness. These few rituals have been mentioned merely as an example. Nonetheless, Arabia was full of countless rituals and many strange customs had been innovated, but Islam fully abolished them with a single strike. Ancient Religions of Arabia Prior to Islam, Arabia was composed of the followers of many diverse religions, the most distinctive of which were idolatry, atheism, Zoroastrianism, Sabianism, Christianity, and Judaism. Of these religions, the most common and widespread throughout the country was a religion of idolatry, which in actuality should be referred to as the religion of the country. Idolaters did acknowledge the existence of Allah, the exalted, but considered their idols a means to reach Him. They were entangled in their intermediary mediators to such an extent as the thought of their true creator had escaped their minds. In addition to commonly shared idols, every tribe possessed its own exclusive idol as well. In Mecca, Isaf and Naila were the idols of the Quraysh, before which sacrifices were slaughtered. Uzza was an idol situated in Nakla, commonly shared by the Quraysh and Banu Kinana. In Taif was the idol belonging to the Banu Taqif known as Lot. Manat belonged to Aus and Khazraj. In Damatul Jandal, the idol named Wad belonged to the Banu Kalb. Suwa was the idol of the tribe of Khudal. Yaguth was the idol of the tribes of Mudaj and Tai. Nasir was the idol of the Dul Khila. And finally, Yauk, which belonged to the tribe of Hamdan, was situated in Yemen, and so on and so forth. The greatest of all was named Hubal, which was placed in the Kaaba. And during battle, upon victory, slogans of its name were called out.
In Arabia, the center of the idolaters was the Kaaba, where many idols had been placed collectively. The idolatrous people of Arabia would gather in Mecca from all over the country for the purpose of pilgrimage. This was as if the only remaining sign of the teachings of Abraham. However, even in the rites of pilgrimage, these people had invented many idolatrous traditions, which were later dispelled by Islam. Due to its distinctively inherent religious element, Mecca and its surrounding region was known as the Haram, where any and all forms of carnage and massacre were strictly forbidden. Correspondingly, to facilitate the passage of travelers for the purpose of Hajj and Umrah, there were four months, Muharram, Rajab, Dhul Qada, and Dhul Hijjah, which were considered to be months of honor. All forms of violence and bloodshed came to a halt during these months and pilgrims could travel in peace. In addition to idolatry, atheism was also found in Arabia as well. Its followers did not believe in the existence of God, life after death, or reward and punishment, etc. The Holy Quran also makes mention of this as well. There were Zoroasters in Arabia as well, who worshipped fire and stars. However, these people also believed in the existence of God and did observe various forms of worship in their religion. Research scholars believe that this religion, which originated from Iran, was among the revealed religions, but gradually strayed from its true precepts. Mention of this is also found in the Holy Quran. The present nation of Persia is a follower of this very religion. Sabianism was also another religion to which the Holy Quran also makes mention. The religion was a combination of Zoroastrianism and Judaism. However, it is known that the Arabians used the word Sabi to refer to anyone who had forsaken his ancient religion and adopted a religion similar to that of monotheism. Hence, upon certain instances, the Holy Prophet and his companions were also referred to as Sabi. Christianity had entered Arabia significantly prior to the advent of Islam, and many tribes had accepted this religion. In Arabia, the region of Najran was a main center of Christianity. The Jews of Arabia had initially emigrated from Syria, after which various other tribes became Jewish in their following. Yathrib, Khaybar, and Thaima were the main centers of Judaism. There was another religion attributed to Prophet Abraham, and it was a claimant of monotheism. People referred to it as the, the Hanafi religion. In the early era of the Holy Prophet وسلم, and prior to him, some people as a result of their repugnancy to Arabia's extreme idolatry and whilst receiving light from the rays of the rising sun of prophethood received by some in advance, were inclined to this religion. However, in all of Arabia, numeric figure of these people were merely confined to a few souls. Most of these people resided in the close proximity of Makkah. Zaid bin Amr, the cousin of Hazrat Umar, who was at terms with the Holy Prophet ﷺ, was also among these people. However, he passed away prior to the advent of the Holy Prophet ﷺ. Said bin Zaid, who was a renowned companion of the Holy Prophet ﷺ, and was among the Ashara Mubashira was his son. Zaid hated idols to such extent as he refused to even consume the food made as an offering to idols. He would say to others, What are these things that you worship? 
In Taif, Omaya bin Abi Salt was a distinguished poet and respected chieftain who had also abandoned idolatry and had adopted the Hanafi religion. Omaya lived after the Battle of Badr, but the acceptance of Islam was not in his destiny. At one occasion, the Holy Prophet listened to his monotheistic poetic couplets with great keenness and said with regret, Omaya was left without Islam at the brink of acceptance. Another individual was Varaka bin Nafal, who was the cousin of Hazrat Khatija and lived in Mecca. He had abandoned the practice of idolatry and later became Christian. He was well acquainted with the Torah and the Gospel and possessed a deep study of them. When the angel of God descended upon the holy prophet وسلم, he attested to the truth of the prophet وسلم, but died in that state. Another individual named Qis bin Saida resided in the region of Banu Bakr bin Wail and was an exceedingly eloquent and articulate speaker. Prior to his advent, the holy prophet وسلم, also listened to an address delivered by him at the Ukaz carnival. Moreover, during the time of his prophethood, the Holy Prophet said, At Ukaz, I listened to an address delivered by Qis bin Saida, which he delivered while sitting on a camel, and the Prophet would extol his eloquence. Qis had also abandoned idol worship and had adopted a monotheistic ideology, but died prior to Islam. Another man was Osman bin Huwarith, who lived in Mecca. He had forsaken idolatry and become a follower of the Hanifi religion. However, when he reached the court of Caesar in Rome, he converted to Christianity and also died in the state. This occurred prior to his. Hence, prior to the advent of Islam, various religions existed in Arabia. However, despite diversity of religions found in Arabia, its true and common religion was idolatry. The number of other religions was also very small, and even they were in an austere state of ruin and failure. European historians have themselves admitted this fact. Whilst reviewing the ancient religions of Arabia, Sir William Muir states, During the youth of Mahomet, the aspect of the peninsula was strongly conservative. Perhaps never at any previous time was reform more hopeless. After five centuries of Christian evangelization, we can point to but a sprinkling here and there of Christian converts. The Banil Harith of Nejran, the Bani Hanifa of Al-Yamama, some of the Bani Ta'i at Thima, and hardly any more. Judaism, vastly more powerful, had exhibited spasmodic efforts, but as an active and converting agent, Jewish faith was no longer operative. In fine, viewed in a religious aspect, the surface of Arabia had been now and then gently rippled by the feeble efforts of Christianity. The sterner influences of Judaism had been occasionally visible in a deeper and more troubled current. But the tide of indigenous idolatry and Ishmaelite superstition setting strongly from every quarter towards the Kaaba, gave ample evidence that the faith and worship of Makkah held the Arab mind in a rigorous and undisputed thraldom. This was not the state of Arabia alone. Rather, this time period was an era of darkness 
for the entire world. And all religions had moved away from its original precepts. The mantle of misguidance had been spread in every direction. The following Quranic verse alludes to this very fact. Corruption has appeared on land and sea. In other words, religions based on the revelation of God have also been corrupted as well, as those whose foundation is not laid upon revelation. Now perceive the fact that when the world is overcast by darkness, the sun rises and when the land begins to singe, it naturally attracts rain. Then, was it not appropriate for a spiritual sun to rise after, after a state of spiritual dark? Should not spiritual land scorching of heat have drawn in rain? God the Almighty states, Allah alternates the night and the day. Moreover, He states, Know that Allah is now quickening the earth after its death. Thus suddenly, a sun rose in this era of darkness, which illuminated the corners of the earth with its rays. During this time of extreme heat, unexpectedly a cloud ascended, which showered its rain of mercy upon thirsty land. Rivers and streams, which had dried, gushed forth of water. Which horizon did this sun rise from? How did it reach its zenith? Which mountain did this cloud come forth from? How did it encompass the entire world? The answers to these questions, God willing, shall be presented in subsequent pages.